great to be back with you again today. I know Jack did a great job preaching last week, so if you want to give him a great thanks right now, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Today I'm actually going to take a kind of a sidestep from the book of Ezra, though it all ties together because the whole Bible and context always ties together, but I want to I want to come back and take a look at what's happening in our world. This has been a very uh, interesting week in light of being in another country, sitting in circles with pastors who we shared in their burdens with them and what it takes to pastor their congregations in the context of their troubles, where the, their governments are making it very difficult to do what they do, and maybe not quite like it is here, but there's certainly pieces we can relate to. But obviously the circumstances of what took place this week in Israel should shock all of us that the depravity of man would, would bear out such wickedness and pain and suffering on others it's hard to even comprehend. Though it doesn't catch as much media, the Ukrainian people took a beating this week as well. That area, that eastern side of Ukraine was just bombed miser- uh, mercilessly this week. And many people lost their lives. And uh, it's not strategic military targets. It's just reckless depravity of man creating hardship for others and, and death and destruction. And so as I was trying to focus my attention on all this while we're in one moment sharing and of how to study the Bible and just the beauty of how the scriptures fit together and it's so enlightening and encouraging and then you have these heavy things that are operating in the background the whole time. And I think all of us in this room can relate to that because we all get up and go to work and we have things to do every day to take care of our families and we go to school, we have events, we cheer on our favorite teams, we celebrated new babies, we mourned the loss of some that went on to heaven, and then we are around all this calamity of news that is so difficult to sometimes bear, and in that, in, the, in that, I think we begin to ask questions of what in the world is going on, and of course, with all that happens, anytime something big happens in Israel, everyone's asking, is this it? Is this the time? Is, is Jesus coming? And I think it's a fair question to ask, and one for us to ponder today. And so my objective this morning is to maybe paint a picture of reality of what's happening, not just what we see in the nations, you can read news as e- easy as I can, but there's a, a spiritual darkness that's behind all of that, and we need to understand why. But we also have a, a purpose to what we're doing right now in the midst of all of the trouble, but we also can look forward in the scripture, and I want you to walk away from here today with a confidence, and though the world may seem to be falling apart in a lot of respects, But you can, as a Christ follower, walk with confidence because you see what the Scripture says, so none of these things should ever take you by surprise. Now, it may be shocking, the information, that one human could inflict that kind of pain and suffering on another. But it should not shock you when it comes to the reality of what the Bible says because this is exactly what we were told would happen. Paul warned Timothy, and this was 1,900 years ago now, But Paul warned Timothy that evil men will wax worse and worse, or they will grow worse and worse as the time of the Lord's return gets closer. So it's definitely an earmark to pay attention to that things are going to go downhill. Obviously, in our world today, we're trying to rescue the planet, and we're trying to create all these ideal environments and do everything seemingly to make it the most perfect oasis ever imaginable. But the fact is the scripture says that we are on a downhill trajectory and we're, this whole earth is groaning and waiting for the return of the king. So nothing should surprise us. While we see these big things that happen in the news, there's also silent things that are happening all over the world today. And I don't, I'm not going to give you a geography class, but I can tell you the state of the church in many nations today is in tough shape. If we went to China, it's in bad shape in China. The government is in great opposition to the church, and even where they maybe have given latitude to things in the past, they're taking away those privileges today. We were scheduled to have potentially another trip to go to Haiti this spring to have a pastor training in Haiti. That has since been canceled due to 
political instability and the pressure applied to the churches. I think about what's happening all over Africa, in which we have investments there as well, and many of these governments in, in Africa are forbidding for missionaries or groups of people to come. They do not want to have the gospel influence. They don't want any religious influences other than the ones they endorse. But there's many places right now where the church is under great pressure and trying to literally shut them down. And if you can't uh, turn in all the right paperwork or pay the right amount of money or do the specific things they tell you, you're done. And they close the doors. And I hear this uh, weekly. And it grieves me, and I try not to come in here and bear you down with things that's like, wow, Dwayne, you're a real, real downer today. We need to just face the reality of the world. And our brothers and sisters in Christ all over this planet are having a tough time. And we don't always feel the brunt of that um, while we're cheering on our favorite teams and enjoying life. But let's go back. What in the world is happening here? Is this expected? Why are we in the shape we're in? Well, I'm going to take you back to even before the Garden of Eden that will give you a snapshot into the why. There is a spiritual darkness that is taking place throughout the world and it's been there since mankind started. And it's due to a conflict that took place in the heavens when God created the angelic host. He created one that was unique and his name was Lucifer by name. And Lucifer had a specific job and he was the anointed cherub that covered over the throne of God with his wingspan. He was beautiful. Matter of fact, he was perfect in wisdom and beauty. And, and as the light of the glory of God would illuminate from the throne, Lucifer would lead the angelic host in worship. And so his very being was so beautiful we can't even imagine it. And God created him to be so. But Lucifer said in his heart five I will statements in pride. It was sin in the heavenlies before mankind was even created. This took place. And Satan's statement, I say Satan because his name will change to that, but this was Lucifer saying these words. He said in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, and by the way, we don't have all the words on the screen today. So I want to paint a picture for you, and I hope you'll just listen super careful. And if I get past things too fast, you're like, whoa, I didn't get all that. Well, go catch it on our website and listen to it and write the verses down and go back and study. And you need to hear this a couple, three times and grab all of it, and that's okay. In Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, the Lord says, Well, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. These five declaration statements we know were said in the heart of Lucifer in pride and he was ultimately then cast down. God did not destroy him on the spot he cast him down and his countenance was changed from this beautiful anointed cherub that covers to now he is known as satan the devil the dragon the serpent and he is spiritual darkness and we learn from revelation chapter 12 that he drew with a tail his tail and his power he drew a third of the angels to follow after him and we now know them in the scripture as demons and they do dark work and and they're in the world today doing dark work under the operative power of Satan who is known as the God of this world, small g. He is the God of this world and he is the one running the course of this world as we know from Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 2 that he sets a course that is ugly and it's destructive and Jesus warned us that Satan comes to kill, to steal and to destroy and so there's nothing good in him. And he will never repent. So the idea of praying that Satan would someday repent is a wasted prayer. He will never. We see the end of his doom at the end of the Bible so that we know what happens to him ultimately. And because God has made this declaration of his doom, there is no need for us to continue to uh, worry about what's coming because we can see it distinctly. Satan, though, is operative. He is a darkness. He's spiritual wickedness in high places. 
And this is what is operating today. You see it in the nations, in these governments. And is what's hard for us to wrap our head around sometimes is the fact that this Satan is at work and he's using all these things to try to oppress the church, to try to crush out Christianity, to do whatever he can. And God allows it because God is the sovereign God. But God takes whatever he is doling up as his worst move and God is able to then turn that thing and redeem it and still use it for good. And people all over this globe today, no matter how much pressure is being applied, will still turn to the God of heaven and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and be saved even with all of the darkness that comes against. And Jesus gets the glory from it. God, we know, obviously created mankind and put man in the, in the garden and created man in the image of God. And man had this sweet fellowship. It was what God's design was, was for man to have this uh, perfect fellowship with the Lord in communication, in, in communion. But who showed up on the scene? Satan, the serpent. He deceived Eve and Eve with her husband. They both, they both ended up eating the fruit that God had forbidden them. God put boundaries to things. Not because He was trying to make their life miserable, but He gave them the entire garden to enjoy, but He did set a boundary. And they, they went out right after the thing that was forbidden. And Satan enticed both of them. And the enticement was this, that this tree, it's going to be good for you. It'll be good for the food. It, it's going to make you wise. It opens up your eyes. It's going to allow you to be able to experience things you would never before. Knowing full well that it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil and pre previous to that, there was no knowledge of evil because the only thing they knew was God. But now evil enters into the world. Sin entered into the world and death entered the world. Spiritual death and man was separate from God. But this was the most powerful thing is because God could have just eliminated Adam and Eve and mankind and be done and come up with a different plan for whatever in His universe. But instead, God, because of His great love for mankind and the relationship and the desire for, for a love relationship with mankind, had a plan for redemption. Even with Adam and Eve, He made a plan to redeem them by taking an animal and killing an animal and covering them with coats of skin to cover their nakedness. And so right out of the beginning of the Bible, blood was shed to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. And God was at work with a redeeming plan. So how do you take a sinful people that can never enter into the presence of a holy God how would you ever make them right so that they could live with God forever? Because God cannot be in fellowship with sin and brokenness. And God is at work. God calls out a man who responded to His Word. A man who was living in Iraq. Current day Iraq. Everyone around was pagan, idol worshipers. But this man whose name was Abram, he responded to the voice of God. And God called him by name. And he responded to yes. And God, he began to follow God by faith. And God made a promise to Abraham and told him that even though you and your wife are old and beyond childbearing years, you're going to have a family. And he even took him out and showed him the stars of the sky and said, you'll have so many kids, it'll be like the stars of the skies. And Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness that he would choose to believe God. And don't think for a second that Satan has now shut down. No, no. <laughs> Not at all. Satan's always at work and he was operative because now God has made a, a choice and you can see God's movement. And through this man Abraham, God now has chosen a family of people because Abraham had a special miracle son, Isaac. And that miracle son also had a son named Jacob. And God chose Jacob to be the nation of Israel and even changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And Jacob had all these sons, 12 sons, that ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel as we know that today. So now a na nation is birthed that we know God through Scripture is working His plan through because it's through this nation God would ultimately bring the Messiah. Because even in the garden He told Eve, that through this curse that now has happened because of sin, mankind's going to struggle in labor and the ground is going to be working against you. For the woman, there'll be pain in childbirth. But for the serpent, Satan, the devil, he said there will, become, there will come a man born of a woman who will crush your head. So Satan has set his course that he's on, he's watching 
Who's the man-child who's been set apart by God now to come to crush my head? And so now Israel ends up as a nation. They find themselves in slavery in Egypt. In order to get food, they move there. But over time, they become slaves to the people of Egypt. They begin to cry out to God. And God, what about your promise that you made to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And God heard their prayer. And God saw their affliction. And God answered their prayer and rose up a deliverer to bring them out. But when God's in the business of raising up someone, Satan is also at work. And so what happened? When Moses, the, the leader, was born, the anointed one who's going to be this leader for Israel, what happens? The government issues a declaration that all the babies need to be killed. And they were. Except Moses. And God rescued Moses. And God did a mighty work to preserve him and ended up Moses becoming the leader of the nation of Israel to guide them out of the slavery of Egypt. And God then took them and was leading them to a land that He promised clear back to Abraham, a piece of real estate. And now they end up in this land. And God told them, when you enter into that land, you need to utterly drive out the inhabitants of this land and don't leave anything left behind. Whatever you leave behind, the people of that land, and you need to understand this sounds wicked and mean of God, that He would say, go in and slaughter all these people. But when you read the book of Deuteronomy in a couple of different spots here, you'll discover that the people of that land did not respond to God. They hated God, and that was the word God used. They hate me. They offered their children in fire to the God of Moloch. They hate the God of heaven. They did not respond in any way to God. And God said, where I'm going to set up my name, I'm going to cause the, my name to dwell in this place and choose a special place right here. You've got to drive out the inhabitants and don't leave any behind. Because whatever you leave behind, they will raise up and they worship false gods. And they may turn the hearts of your children to worship false gods as well. And you might even take, your sons will take their wives or their daughters to be their wives. And vice versa with your daughters. And it will be a snare to you. You do a little geographic study today, the remnants that Israel left behind in those days when they did not choose to obey God are the nations that surround them today with all guns pointed at them. It's a snare. God says what He means, and He means what He says. But God's still at work. And so now what happens? God said, I'm choosing a place where my name will dwell in a unique place. So in this place called Israel today, a, a chunk of real estate, God chose out a special city in Jerusalem. And that was the place where ultimately Solomon built a temple. And this temple was incredible. And this is the place where people would come from literally all over the world. We see this in Scripture. And they would come just to see the glory of God in this place, in this unique group of people whose lives were ordered by God's laws and they didn't do things like everybody else because they worshiped the God of heaven. But Satan's at work. And Solomon, this man who has a lustful appetite for, for women and security, power, Satan exploited it. So Solomon now takes upon him 700 wives and 300 concubines, which are just women for his pleasure. Now, who are these people? What is he doing? These are women from the nations around that God had told him not to, not to marry with those nations and not to intermingle like that. They shouldn't even be there. But he did. And he made leagues with their fathers. He'd take the daughters and marry them and make a league with the fathers to have security all around him. And you just keep piling this up, one after the other. But then he married these women, and now they want temples to their false gods built in their name. And so now he begins to build these false god temples everywhere. And the heart of Solomon turned from being devoted wholly unto the Lord to now for these other things. And so what happens, the whole nation begins to cascade downhill in idolatry until eventually worshiping false idols and trying to worship God at the same time became standard practice. God sent prophets 
to Israel and pleading with them to wholly follow after the Lord and be devoted unto the Lord. But they wouldn't listen. So God raised up an empire, the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar, and came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of God, and now deported out the people and took them away to Iraq and to Iran. And they are now in exile. But God did this for a discipline, as He said He would. And He made a promise to them that I'm going I'm to discipline you, but I'm going to bring you back and put you back and give you a, a remnant to come back here again and fulfill the promise that I've always had for you. And so after 70 years of being in exile away from Jerusalem, God raised up another king, Cyrus, the king of Persia, who recognized that that city was God's city and that temple was to be God's temple building. And so he gave a decree and sent people back. And so we've, this is what we've been studying in the book of Ezra when Zerubbabel leads a whole group of people, about 50,000 people, go back for a construction project to rebuild the temple. And then later, King Artaxerxes, who followed after Cyrus, he gives a decree in sending out Ezra himself back to reestablish temple worship. And so things are seemingly put back in order. But as Jack taught last week, sin and corruption entered in because of a lustful heart. There's, Satan's always at work, man. The deception and darkness and lure and appetite, it's always working. And he sees the darkness of our hearts and he runs on those rails and knows exactly what to entice at the right time. And so these people who responded to God left Iran and Iraq to come back to rebuild, to establish worship. And what do they do? They married the people in the nations all around them again. And it's like we start this whole thing all over again. And so at the place that we are in our study in the book of Ezra is Ezra literally sits down and weeps and pleads with God for mercy because we've done this again. But I'm not going to tell that part of the story as much today because I want to move forward to understand the whole picture of what's happening. Because as the history now progresses forward, the Medo-Persian Empire eventually was, was crushed. Israel technically is deported who, who owns or controls that chunk of real estate would have technically been under Babylon and then that passed to the Medo-Persian Empire. And so, so when you see people being sent back to rebuild, they're being sent back from Iran, from Shushan the palace, which is today Susa, which is in Iran. And they're sent back. So the Iranians would say, Technically, we own that piece of real estate because you were sent back with permission to rebuild, but we were the owners of it at that point. Well, eventually, the Medo-Persian Empire was crushed by the Greek Empire, and the Greek Empire crushed by the Roman Empire. And by this point, we end up with a big chunk of 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament of our Bibles, and now it's time the Lord shows up while the Roman Empire is in full play. Jesus comes as the Savior. We know that. The Son of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God comes. The Redeemer, the Messiah, the one that has been promised from the beginning, the one who will crush the head of Satan. So, of course, follow the procedures. What does the devil do? If this is the one who's come to crush the head, kill the babies. It's always the protocol. But, of course, our Messiah was left alive. And Jesus, after all of the miracles and 33 and a half years of living a perfect sinless life on this planet, went to the cross of Christ, was crucified. The scene was dark. The devil seems to get his due in that moment. But never lose perspective here that it was the Lord Jesus Christ that said this, that I come to lay my life down. No man takes my life. I lay it down. And though darkness seemed to prevail in that moment, it seemed. It did not. Because our Savior gave His life to pay for our sin debt in full. And three days later rose from the grave alive and He conquered the power base, 
the power base of sin is now conquered. So that those who call upon the name of the Lord for, to be saved now are not only forgiven and set free from sin, but empowered by God to have victory over sin. So we are no longer living in slavery to the sin that we once knew. We are liberated from it. We may choose to sin and go back to these things and be enticed and lured by the spiritual darkness of this world to go back into sinful behavior, but that is a contradiction to who we are in Christ Jesus because He has empowered us to have victory over that. When He rose from the grave alive, He had victory then over death, and so death doesn't even have dominion. Because though we may take a last breath on this planet, we will immediately be in the presence of the Lord. And even our bodies will resurrect one day when they are joined back and we uh, are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when Jesus ascended up on high, He, he gave a, a commission to those that He had trained as faithful followers of Him and He told them to, to go into all the world and preach the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the rest of the world and go. And go in the power, in the name of Jesus Christ to do it. And so we now have received that same commission having been handed down for these last 2,000 years. And if you just watch church history, what happens? Satan, man, he loads up. In 70 AD, the temple that was rebuilt in Ezra's day, that temple was destroyed in 70 AD and laid in ruin. The Jews still do not have a sovereign place that they would call home at that time. They were a dispersed people. From 586 B.C., the Israelites are a dispersed people throughout the world. With no temple after 70 A.D. in that spot. The church begins to multiply. Satan applied immense pressure with persecution and, and death became a normal part of becoming a Christian, but death didn't seem to stop Christianity. You try to kill them and they keep multiplying. And so in about 300 AD, it's like a master move of trying to marry the church with the state or marry the church with the government under Constantine to where now all of a sudden... Christianity and church or state all became, kind of become one and it becomes a power organization that rules. But it wasn't the genuine Christ follower believer and persecution and darkness continued. In 691 AD, a new building was built on top of that temple foundation where God's temple has been built twice. And that place today is known as the Dome of the Rock. The Muslims built a building there, believing it would be the last place that Muhammad was, that he was there. And the writings of Muhammad are in that place. It's a sacred building. Built on the exact same foundation as the Temple of God where it stood twice. Now you get a picture of this conflict. So now we continue to progress this film forward to where we are to near today. But there was pieces of Bible prophecy that had not yet become realized because the way it appeared in Scripture is that the Jews would somehow be back in their homeland and that there would be a city involved. And they would be a nation. And it's hard to even imagine those that for 15, 1800 years tried to imagine these dispersed Jews all over the world. How could they ever end up being a nation again? Well, in the early 1900s, 1917 to be exact, it was the Balfour Declaration by Lord Balfour of Great Britain that gave Jews permission to begin returning back to Palestine. And so they began to migrate back to the homeland. They're still not a country, they're not a, a recognized nation. They just went back to the homeland. Of course it's under conflict because you're coming back to here, but who actually owns all this land? In 1948, through all these agreements and things that took place, in 1948 Israel became a recognized nation among the family of nations. They were sovereign once again, as they are today. So in these last, what, 75 years, something miraculous has happened, and that is that Israel as a nation... It is a nation recognized among the family of nations. But this spiritual darkness 
it's still there. Satan's head has yet to be crushed. His power base maybe is damaged drastically, but his head's not crushed. And so he's still operative. The church continues to expand, but here's the risk. You can just wrap our head around what's happening today in the church. Put pressure on the church. Load them heavy with government. Oppress them and persecute them and try to get people to hunker down and just stop advancing the kingdom of God forward. To disperse the Christians all over the place so they're no longer meeting together as they once would. Where if this is what it means to come together, forget it, I'm staying home. Just look at how much power a pandemic had to crush the church in the last four years. The landscape of Christianity has shifted drastically in the last four years. People scattered. Many have not come back. Just in America alone, church attendance is down by more than 25% of what it was pre-pandemic. And our population is greater than it used to be. This is very powerful. And now you're seeing these immense pressures and all this conflict all over. So the question is, everybody's asking is, is this it? Is this the end? What should we expect? When the words of Jesus, when the disciples asked that same question, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus explained. I'll just read this, so listen carefully. He sat down in Matthew 24 on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered that, said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And we've seen all those types of things. So is this it? I mean, it was like, are, are we there? Jesus said, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. There's a beginning, there's a starting point. And Jesus gives a couple of time mile markers in this text that makes it very helpful to understand something. He just labeled the beginning, and he's going to enable, label another extremely significant event that we can keep our eye on. And it's also critical to understand who is he describing in all of this conversation. What we have been experiencing, from my perspective in Scripture, is this. What we have been experiencing in pestilences and earthquakes and fires and troubles and nation against nation and war on every front imaginable is a really intense dress rehearsal for what is about to come. And what's about to come is incomprehensible. And here's why. In verse 9 of this same text, he said, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation, that's a big word, and kill you and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. They'll betray one another and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Then the end will come. And here's another big mile marker. And he said, therefore, based on everything I have told you, He's going to say, pay attention here. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. He just described an event called the abomination of desolation. Those are huge words, but it's terrible. Well, what's so terrible? Daniel the prophet and Daniel chapter 9 explains the whole historical sequence of most of what I've just told you up to now. And he even gives a, a glimpse into the things to come. And in Daniel chapter 9, what he describes as calling him a prince, small p, a prince. A prince will come and he will make a, a covenant peace agreement with Israel. And finally, 
all this mass chaos will come to a stop. And it's designed to last for who knows how long. But three and a half years deep into this, the abomination of desolation happens. That anti-Christ figure will reveal who he really is. He's called the son of perdition. He's the human form of this spiritual darkness that's driving him, Satan himself. He's called the Antichrist. And what will he do? He will enter into the temple of God and sit on the throne of God and declare himself to be God. Now, back up a second. In order for the Antichrist to sit in the, throne of, uh, in the temple of God, we're missing something still today. What are we missing? A temple. A temple needs to be built. It's hard to even imagine. Are, are they going to build it in the same place that it was before on the same foundation where Solomon built the temple? And in the same exact place where the second one was done? Because if so, holy smokes, the Dome of the Rock has got to be removed and that's like the Muslim sacred piece of real estate on the earth. That sounds impossible. That's what makes the Bible sometimes so hard to believe but not hard to understand. But he describes this abomination when he said, and Paul warned this in 2 Thessalonians, he said, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and that man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Now, why would he do that? Because Lucifer said the exact thing that he would oppose and exalt himself and place his throne above God's throne. So what does his guy do who comes in the name of Satan? He opposes and exalts above all that is called God or that is worship. And he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Well, of course he will because that is the heart of Lucifer, the Satan, the devil, the dragon. That's what he said all along that the world will worship me. And so we see, wow, we've got some things that are some missing components. We can also imagine there's immense conflict that's going to come. We can also know that there's a, a peace giver who's going to show up on the scene who will give false peace because it will be a treaty that's kind of a, a lure that ultimately draw the Jews into the home base because once abomination of desolation takes place and he now exposes who he really is, this is when Jesus warned, then let them of Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are on the housetop not go down and take anything out. You better run. Let who in, those in the field don't go back. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days and are nursing babies. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Notice he's, he's speaking of Jerusalem, the Sabbath day. He's speaking of Judea. He's talking here to a Jewish context of people. It seems as if we're missing the equation because we're the Gentile church. That's right. We are out of this equation. Because what he is describing is a tribulation time. And matter of fact, this abomination kicks off what is known as the Great Tribulation, where for three and a half years, according to the book of Revelation, will be the most incomprehensible events this world has ever known. And matter of fact, Jesus even says that. Jesus said that for then there will be a Great Tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world. Hello, what about Noah's day? Can you get any worse? Yes, you can. And he said, the beginning of the world until this time, we've never seen anything like it, nor ever shall be again. This is an intense three and a half years where when you read through the book of Revelation, you'll see little pieces and it's just verses at a time. It's like, wow, a third of the earth's population dies in a in moments because some event happened you're talking right now that would be two and a half billion people game over instant it's incomprehensible 
Well, are we here for all of this? Do, I mean, are we having to endure all of this? Let me just tell you something beautiful about the great gospel of Jesus Christ the Lord and being a part of the church. This was a mystery that Paul revealed, and it's the mystery of the church. It's the mystery of Christ in you. It's the mystery of the fact that you are in Christ Jesus. It's the mystery of the fact that God would take the church out because they're His bride and He's made a place to take His bride home and the marriage supper of the Lamb and it's in a beautiful scene where God takes His church away and brings His church back as mighty warriors in union with Him as we conquer the nations in the future. This is an incredible scene. And, and this is revealed by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and, and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Two places of witnesses at least. Plus we have the example in the Old Testament by, by sheer patterns. When the disciples asked Jesus, well, how will we know when you're coming? He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. People will be given in marriage. They'll be eating and drinking and acting like everything's cool. And then bam, all of a sudden Jesus shows up and wrecks the place. How will we know? Well, just think, as it was in the days of Noah. Well, what happened before the days of Noah? This dude named Enoch who was walking with God, God took him. An incredible image of God telling his story. This isn't the first time he told it. He keeps telling it again and again and again so we won't miss it. So we look forward as a church as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ with the salvation, I'm secure in my salvation to know that I have been saved from wrath. Romans 5.9 affirms I have been saved from wrath. You know what the tribulation time is called? The wrath of the Lamb. I will not experience the wrath of the Lamb. I've been saved from the wrath of the Lamb. The time of the tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. I am not of Jacob's family. I am a Gentile believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I can with security and with confidence, I can, I can see the events of this world and I hate what's happening because innocent people get caught in the calamity and trouble and crosshairs of demonic things, terrible things, evil things. But you know what this should do in our lives? I'm going to give the cry out and then I'm going to be done quick. Here's the cry of the people in Scripture who spoke into the second coming of, and the end times. What did Jesus say? When he, every time He spoke of the end times and His return, He reminded about what are we to be doing in this hour. Watch and pray. Watch. Keep your eye ready. You're living in a ready state all the time knowing that any moment the Lord is going to come and He's going to take me away to be with Him and I, I want to be ready for that. So I want to be about my Father's business in anticipation. Paul repeats this over and over every time Paul spoke about end times things. And he does often. Every time, if you'll go watch the pattern, at the conclusion of it, he will remind us as a church be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Keep your eye on the prize. Because Jesus is coming. But meanwhile, don't lose heart. And understand, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, yeah, you're going to suffer persecution that's real. You may lose your life serving Jesus. Yes, that's real. Does that bring glory to the Lord when a Christ follower loves Jesus unto death? Of course it brings glory to Jesus and now you're with Him for forever. And if God permits that you and I may live all the way up until the day that Jesus comes to take us away, praise God, may we be found faithful, steadfast, continuing to Make disciples. Continuing to go to the nations. Continuing to build churches and multiply churches. Continuing to train pastors and, and share the tools that God gives to us. And we just continue, continue, continue. Because that's the word that is always spoken. When you're talking the second coming context is continue. 
when Peter spoke of this, and he said, after you see all these things have been dissolved, the heaven and earth, they're eventually going to all pass away. And he said, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking and hasting unto the coming of the day of God when everything will be dissolved, but the glory of the Lord <laughs> is revealed. But the creator is the prompt. If you know all this stuff is not going to last forever, stop investing your time and all the things and all your energies into the things that are going to dissolve and invest your time in the kingdom that does last forever. And what manner of conduct ought we to be? And this is why next week I'll loop back to the book of Ezra because here's a group of people who had an incredible mission called out unto a unique revival by God for a special time. And somehow the things of this world captured their heart. And oh, that that would not happen at one community church. That the Lord would find us faithful. So what do we do in the midst of all the chaos of this world? And we pray for the nation. We pray for those that are being their families are being victimized by all the craziness that's happening in our world. We pray that the gospel would be advanced. We pray for leaders to change their mind. We don't know the time of how all this stuff plays. We see the seasons. We can understand our scripture. But we don't know when the Lord will take the church away and the beginning of sorrows and this amping up into things that are just horrific. We don't know. We don't know when that temple will be built that the Antichrist is going to sit down in and claim to be God. We don't know. But we sure see all these events just keep ramping up and ramping up. And boy, it seems like, gosh, the, the Lord's got me getting close. Because with his dress rehearsals getting really real all of a sudden. Indeed. So let's continue and be steadfast and continue God's kingdom in this world and bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? If you came in this place today and you're not confident in your salvation, meaning if you take your last breath in the next five minutes, you're not sure if you'll be with Jesus or not. You hope so, but you don't know so. I want to just share something with you really quick. How can you know? It's not because of what you do or what you don't do. It's because of who do you believe in? Who do you trust? Believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and believing that He truly came and gave His life on a cross to pay your sin debt. And believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and truly He is God and declared to be God by the resurrection. And through that belief, you trust Him. You trust Him to save you because He's the only one qualified to do so. You trust Him with your life and therefore you confess. You just come right out and say, Lord Jesus, because He's the only Lord, the only true King. And you confess Him as Lord. Believing in your heart, God raised Him from the dead. The Scripture says when we believe Him, we trust Him that we are saved and God seals us and that salvation is secure by the Holy Spirit of God and it is secure and cannot be unbroken or cannot be broken. And so here's my encouragement. If you came in here today unsure, you can leave here today sure about your eternal life. Talk to Jesus. Call upon His name right now. Lord Jesus, I ask you to save me. 
I know I'm a sinner and need a Savior. I know I can't save myself. I believe you. I trust you. And you call upon His name from right where you're at. And God will speak to your heart. You'll know. Christians in this room today, we have a, an incredible opportunity and task in front of us. The privilege to show glory or to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve Him daily but to be steadfast and continue in the work that He's given us to do and not lose heart and not sit down and not hunker down in our little spots, but we continue to advance because we know the Scripture says that even the gates of hell cannot come up against the church. And so we go forward in the name and power of Jesus, trusting Him for His resources and His power and with His gospel. Lord, thank you for the time and you've given us in your word today for reminding us, teaching us, helping us to see you and your kingdom and, and understanding, Lord, all of the things that are happening in this world. And Lord, we know from Scripture that there's coming a day when Satan will ultimately be cast down into a lake of fire and he'll be put out of business forever because you're the king. You are the true king. And today we yield ourselves. We bow ourselves before you, God, knowing that you are truly the king and we want to serve you faithfully. So Lord, call us into an intimacy of relationship with you this morning. And compel us, Lord, to go forward in the name and power of Jesus. To do what you left us on the planet to do. Lord, we do pray for the nations. We pray especially today for nations that are having loss of life and afflicted terribly by wicked and unreasonable men. And we don't even begin to understand how you will work all these things together for good, but we trust you because you're a sovereign God and the history would prove without question you are faithful and you accomplish your purposes. And so we trust you today, Father, that your will be done. We love you and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.